0: Welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Suzanne Spradley, and I am joined with Chase Cannon. We are both attorneys at NFP in the Benefits Compliance and Legal section of NFP, and we are here today to help dive into some of the topics that are being discussed in Washington and unpack them a bit for your benefit. It's compliance. We have a little history thrown in, and we think it's a lot of fun. So today we're going to tackle... Um, one of the issues in the Republican p- replacement plans that we're hearing discussed over and over and is very key um, and near and dear to our hearts as well as it will be for yours. And it's the employee tax exclusion for employer provided benefits. Um before we get into the to um, all of the nuances of this, Chase, describe what we're talking about when we say employee tax exclusion for employer provided benefits.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Suzanne. That's a great question, right? When we talk about taxes and we talk about exclusions, it's a quick way to end the conversation, right? People lose interest. They start to gray over. It's a boring topic, usually. We'll uh, make it fun, though. We'll make it fun. And it, it actually, this one has a pretty big impact on everybody who has a job and gets benefits or, or health services coverage through their employer. Um, so let's start with the basics, though. This is sort of tax 101, right? Um, The federal tax code basically says right now, if an employer gives you as an employee anything, you have to include that in your gross income. And so the easiest example is um, your salary. We pay you $25,000 per year. You now have that as gross income. And what does that mean? That means that it's considered compensation. You have to pay taxes on it. And what do we mean when we say taxes? We're talking about federal income tax withholding, and we're talking about employment taxes. And that includes Social Security taxes, which are sometimes um, also referred to as FICA and FUTA. So um, that's the general tax rule. If I get something from my employer, it's taxed. Now, the Internal Revenue Code um, includes special exceptions to that general rule, where the legislature or whoever has decided that we need to not
0: include that amount in your gross income. Um, and we, inc- we describe those as exclusions. So there's, there's policy reasons for these exclusions. They're trying to promote something. Right. You're either trying to promote something or you're, you're trying to protect something, some unfair
1: taxation of an item. And so an easy example is if you, Suzanne, you go on a business trip up to uh, Boston, you buy your airline tickets and your hotel and your food. And then the NFP reimburses you for those amounts. Well, that's something the the employer, NFP, has given you. It's money. Yet the tax code says, well, we're not going to count that as gross income because that's not really fair. We're just reimbursing you for your costs for that trip. And that trip was on behalf of the employer. And so you didn't get any personal gain from that. And so that's referred to as an exclusion. For benefits, um, the tax code has several sections that allow for these exclusions where an employer pays or reimburses certain health and welfare benefits for its employees. Um, The the example and what we're going to be talking about today is an employer, they want to sponsor a group health plan for its employees, and they want to pay 100% of the premiums for that coverage. The tax code says, okay, you want to pay that employer. We think that that's a good thing for employees to have, and we want to encourage that. So we're going to provide a tax exclusion for the amounts the employer is paying for the employee's premiums. Uh, Easy example, let's just say $100 per month is your premium. NFP wants to pay that for you, that's $1,200 per year. NFP can pay out $1,200 per year on your behalf to the insurance company, and there's no income tax withholding. That's not considered gross income to you as an employee, and that is what we are referring to as the employee tax exclusion.
0: Okay, but there's there's also a benefit to employers, right? So what? what right. Walk me through that from a tax perspective.
1: Right, the employer's still getting something here,
0: right? This isn't just
1: all about the employee. Um, the first is that the employer, and this is a distinction when we're talking tax terminology. There's a tax deduction and there's a tax exclusion. The employer can still deduct the amounts it pays for the plan and the premiums as ordinary and necessary business expenses so that's a tax deduction. That's similar to how an employer would deduct the cost of new machinery. If they purchase a, a new machine to produce a, a business product, the employer can deduct the cost of providing benefits to its employees. So same idea, uh, but it's on the tax world, it's a different, uh, different tax benefit. One's a deduction. I'm claiming this against my uh, profits over here, whereas an exclusion is that I'm, I'm never including it in, in someone's gross income.
0: Okay, now let's get to the part that's my favorite. Really, I think this is what adds color to things. But let's walk through the history of this exclusion. Tell me the policy reasons why why it, why it was put into place, and and walk me through how long it's been there.
1: Right. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that. We're going to go back to World War II here, um, and and an interesting. Uh, government agency called the National War Labor Board that most of us have not heard of. But basically, um, after World War II or or towards the end of World War II, there's this period of large labor shortages, right? And so employers are trying to attract and retain workers. And at the same time, there's a, a, a high wage increase going on. And so the National War Labor Board stepped in, sort of armed with this federal authority, and they put out a ruling in 1943 Um, So again, towards the end of World War II there, that employer-provided fringe benefits would not be taxable income to employees. And so um, that was later codified into the tax code, which is sort of what we were just talking about. It's there still. In 1954, that was codified.
0: And so um, back then- And so a labor shortage is really kind of what what started this? Right. So the idea of retention of employees, which is something we still deal with today. Right. And that's exactly that's another. We were just talking about uh, benefits
1: that the employer gets out of this, right? That's that's one of the biggest ones. It may not be a specific tax benefit, uh, but the ability to attract and retain talent, and that was a big issue back then. And so this this War Labor Board decided this is a good policy reason. Let's allow employers to get a few tax advantages to go along with that so that they can um, attract and retain talent. So let's look a little bit more of the historical things that were going on back then. Um, There's a couple of different areas that were really growing um, that that sort of impacts the uh, increase in employer-based coverage here. But the first one is the war itself significantly increased usage and awareness of medical advancements like drugs and procedures. And some, most of those increased average life expectancy. So during the war, you see usage of penicillin or a new medical procedure that saves a life. Previously, maybe much of the population was unaware of that drug or that, that uh, procedure. And now they have some sort of awareness. So they realize, I have a chance here. If I can get that, I can increase my life expectancy. Another factor is annual incomes for individuals and fam- families. That was, rose significantly post-war, and so that gave people more discretionary income to spend on medical care. So you can kind of see some ingredients coming into play here when, it, when we're figuring out how employer-sponsored coverage is gonna grow. The third, and maybe the biggest one, is for insurance companies. Data collection and analysis capabilities really took off, and that gave insurance firms the tools to appropriately weigh risk and set prices for groups of insurance purchasers. They have a lot more information. They can now figure out, well, what what would it cost if we had this group to be able to insure against medical risks? Um, So when we're looking at, well, what are those groups? We have now a built-in group through the employer. We have, let's say, an employer with 100 employees. Well, now an insurance company has a set group with 100 employees, those employees are already going to be showing up to their jobs. And so if we enroll them in health coverage, now we have a set group of 100 that we can set a rate on. It just becomes a very easy way for insurance companies to administer um, health insurance and create these groups of risk. So this is...
0: And there's kind of like a natural occurring risk pool balance there because you're going to have workers at various ages and and certainly they're not going to be coming in and out as they would in an individual market so can you touch on that
1: right so you get rid of sort of the a lot of the problems with adverse selection right the employee employees are there they're going to be enrolling in the plans you have a wide base of risks um, which back then tended to skew younger and healthier so that decreased costs for insurance companies um, because it wasn't widespread yet. I think when they originally put in this tax exclusion, it probably didn't have maybe the impact they thought it would. Maybe they didn't see all these ingredients being mixed into the bowl. Um, but we'll we'll see. This became a very successful way to deliver healthcare in our country through this employer-based coverage. Um, so looking at the numbers um, in 1940, so when we were first getting started on this, there's around 10 million folks covered under employer plans. But by 1970 that number jumps to 160 million. So really a massive massive increase in who's covered under a group health plan through an employer. You don't see those same increases on the individual side um, over that period of time. And and we've kind of seen similar trends since 1970. Um, Medicare and Medicaid, obviously our government programs came in in the mid-60s. That helped address some of you know, the challenges that come with the employer-based system, including high-risk individuals that don't have access to employer coverage. Um, But we've seen since then the cost of health insurance, the growth of this employer system, um, the percent of compensation of the employee tax exclusion has risen. And so we'll get to this in a little bit, talking about the actual cost when they enacted, when the War Labor Board sort of put this in and it was codified in our tax code, probably a lot less impactful then versus now. Um, But again... But that's true.
0: That's true. We have almost two-thirds of of the country now covered under uh, employer-sponsored coverage. That's a large section of the population that is uh, receiving a benefit from this tax exclusion. So... um, and, and when you talk about that, it's really the federal government is giving up revenue when, when they have a tax exclusion. So talk to me about that. What's, what's the amount of money that the federal government is giving up? Why is that important?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And it's going to get us to our end result here when we're talking about the, what's, how this impacts replacement for the Republicans. Um, but we refer to that in the tax world as a tax expenditure And basically, this sounds like a great deal for the employer. They get these tax benefits. The employee obviously loves it. We don't have to include this as employees in our gross income. Um, But the federal government, Uncle Sam over here, is saying, hey, wait a minute. This is a huge chunk of money that I'm missing out on. And so, again, that's referred to as a tax expenditure. It's something the federal government is spending, or said another way, they're losing as a result of a tax policy. So you mentioned that earlier earlier. Um, we as a country have decided that that's a good thing, this tax expenditure. Um, so let's put it into our tax code to encourage that behavior. Um, but let's talk about the amount here. It's actually quite exta- astounding. Uh, the exclusion is estimated in 2017 to cost the federal government an estimate at uh, $260 billion. Wow. So that's through income and payroll taxes that they're foregoing based on this exclusion. And that makes it... The single largest tax expenditure in the tax code. So the biggest piece of pie out there for the federal government that they're missing out on is this employee tax exclusion.
0: So I, I, well, let's get into that a little bit more and bring it to the discussion today as it relates to healthcare reform of why that's important. I know some of the Republicans believe. Um, in one sense that it's just an imbalance of fairness because the employees that are covered by employer-sponsored coverage are receiving this tax benefit, but other individuals are not. But now bring it more into the, the repeal and the replace programs uh, or proposals. Um, talk to me about that a bit.
1: Right. So what? how does this all sort of play into replacement, I guess? Nothing formal has been introduced, first of all, right? This is just something we're hearing a, a lot about. But it seems to be a common thread through all the replacement ideas that we're seeing out there is the idea of setting some sort of limitation or a cap on the employee tax exclusion for, for employer-provided benefits.
0: So walk us through the caps. What are the different ways that we're seeing it in the proposals?
1: Right. There's a couple different ways that the Republicans have discussed this. Um, the first and probably the easiest to understand um, would be a straight percentage cap or limit. So an example would be the employee could exclude up to 90% of the total amount the employer pays on their behalf. So putting that in a dollar number, if the employer paid $1,000 per year toward an employee's health insurance, uh, the employee would be able to exclude 90% or $900, but that last 10% or $100 would be included in their gross income. So sort of setting a percentage based on what the employer is paying. Another way would be a strict dollar limit, such as X dollars amount per year, and we're actually hearing more and more uh, about this structure here. But if the limit was $1,000 per year and the employer was paying out $2,000 per year for premiums, well, the employee would get the benefit of that tax exclusion for the first thousand, but then the second thousand dollars would be included in their gross income.
0: So... So compare that to the Cadillac tax, because they're obviously going to repeal the Cadillac tax. They seem similar in many respects, um, especially as you relate it to a strict dollar cap. You had had a cap, a threshold under the Cadillac tax, um, and then now you have another threshold under under this type of system.
1: Right. Um, Great point. The ACA, as it's written now, includes this provision called the Cadillac tax that is aimed at a couple of things. Uh, driving revenue, first of all, wants to be able we want to be able to get money through a tax on ultra expensive coverage. And actually, I don't think it's really ultra expensive where they set the threshold limits. Um, but the, one of the primary differences is who the ta- uh, the Cadillac tax would be levied upon. And in, in, as it's written under the ACA, that would be on the carrier. Obviously, you would have this trickle down effect. If the carrier has to pay more money, they're going to increase their premiums, which passes down to the employer and ultimately down to the employee. They're going to be paying more. Uh, but that's one of the main differences for the employee tax exclusion. We're talking about not a new tax. This is uh, just a cap on what the employees can uh, exclude from their gross income.
0: So, and, and in talking about this revenue, uh, why the revenue is important, obviously under the current ACA, there's there are federal subsidies. Um, that they're having to pay for—that's probably the largest piece of uh, cost, or one of the the pieces of cost under the ACA. Um, the Republicans will likely replace the subsidies with something, so um, we don't know what that something is. But right. there will still be a need for this revenue source, right? Exactly. Right. And, and so we know we know kind of we have we have a lot of analysis on the Cadillac tax and the impact it would have had on employers. Talk to me about the impact on the employer-sponsored market of the of the uh, cap on the exclusion. Right. So it's a it would be an interesting
1: impact. We don't know exactly what it would look like, obviously, until it actually got in there. But w- what we think would happen: a cap would probably not discourage employers from just dropping health insurance altogether. Right. If they lose all the ta- if it was a full repeal here on this tax exclusion for employees, then I think employers would be like wait a minute, why are we doing this? Employees aren't getting any tax here. We lose this as sort of an incentive to offer great benefits. Um, Maybe we should just consider dropping our coverage altogether. Um, So that would have a big impact, I think. But what we're hearing more about is that's not going to happen. It's just going to be a cap or a limit. In that case, I think you'll see uh, employers exploring different plan options. Maybe they won't be going for the most expensive plan because they realize there's a limit on what they can exclude from their employees' gross income. Um, and so maybe they'll be reining in their plan choices a little bit. And obviously, employees will have a slight impact on the amount that they can exclude from their gross income. Um, but we don't. I don't see it as a huge game changer as far as whether employers would continue to offer coverage or not. They will continue to offer coverage. They'll just have to make slight adjustments in how that tax exclusion is calculated. So maybe some administrative burden that goes in on that um, and maybe a slight impact from on employees depending on how the actual structure comes out. Um, the balance that I think most uh, legislators and people involved in these discussions, they're trying to figure out the best way to take back a part of this giant tax expenditure, um, take back a little bit of it, but have a minimal impact on um, everyday workers that are out there trying to just work and have a good source for their uh, health care insurance. And so I think that's the balance that we'll see is how, how can we put a limit of maybe 10% or a dollar amount on there where we can get some of this money back to the federal government to be able to fund some of the... Uh, potential parts of a replacement plan, but let's not go yank the rug out from under the employees over here that are working hard and, and uh, getting their insurance through their employer.
0: Boy, that's, that is true. And we are involved in several lobbying groups, the CIAB, Council for Insurance Agents and Brokers, NAHU, the National Association of Health Underwriters, and the American Benefits Council, all of which are on the Hill saying, protect that employer-sponsored market. That's the market that's working well Let's not disrupt that market. Let's not touch that that employer exclusion, employee exclusion. Um, leave it alone. And so we are certainly involved in those discussions. We're up on the hill fighting that battle as well. We, but uh, but your give me again your your last thoughts on whether you think it'll be included or not. What's your what's the line?
1: Yeah, <laughs> well, the we should set an over under on <laughs> what that number might be. But you you mentioned earlier two thirds of our. Um, covered individuals are covered through an employer-based system, right? And so it's just, it's such a huge part of how we deliver healthcare in this country now and healthcare insurance that I think what we'll see is let's let's not mess with that. Um, let's fix the problems that are over in the individual market. We mentioned the huge uh, premium increases that are over in the individual market that aren't on the group market. Um, so we don't have those problems, but let, let's leave this alone as much as we can. I think we probably are, we're hearing so much about some sort of cap or limit that we will probably see that. Uh, but my over/under would be that we're, it's not going to be a huge impact on what we what employees would be losing here, and it's not going to have a major impact on how employers make decisions. But it definitely will be something to watch, and something that will will cover as, as we get there, right? as we see more right. formal legislation introduced and we would get further into these discussions
0: which we've recently seen the blueprint released and so we will watch for developments over the next uh, few weeks few months and certainly bring more information to you through these podcasts but for today as we like for today as we like to say in the benefits compliance world that's a wrap that's a wrap we'll look forward to discussing uh, this issue and other issues further the next time on the benefits compliance podcast thank you for joining us